But I'm sure you didn't tune into the podcast this week purely to hear me talk about the WA border laws. So let's enter the jungle and talk about this law. Law sees a pass baseline and gets upstairs. Birch. Fit Law. Thanks, Floater, by Fit Law. Law. Back out. Cotton. Back to Law. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yes, Vic Law, welcome to the Dribble Podcast. Thanks for having me. That was quite a performance from you against Illawarra, Vic. No shots in the first quarter, and you finished with 22 points, seven rebounds, two blocks. It was quite a statement. What changed for you after quarter time? Um, I thought, I, you know, we uh, came out to another one of our, you know, notoriously great starts, and um, I felt like it was it was time for me to be be a little bit more aggressive. Um, you know, I, I think we were trying to, you know, trying to just establish a couple guys early, um, but you know, even even while doing that, that doesn't mean I I can't be aggressive. So I came out of the second quarter trying to make it a point to um, assert myself a little bit. So it was a fair point you made in the second quarter, just dominating the game. But it was interesting watching the match. That the focus of the commentary team throughout the game was how it was possible for someone like yourself to not ha- get a single shot in the first quarter, given the team was struggling. They felt that they should have been going through you a lot more. Can you take us inside your offense a little bit to discuss how you and Bryce and, and Michael Frazier are sort of working things out together as what is a really new import combination? Yeah, I mean, the, um, the combo of us three... And with especially with the rest of the guys, it's just been really cool, you know, throughout the year. I feel like just with our play styles and how, you know, each of us are willing to kind of get off the ball and, and defer to one another, it's it's been kind of great. I think, you know, you're still seeing like Todd Blanchfield get his rhythm back. Michael Frazier is still coming along and it's been great, right? And that's why you have a team, you know. You might have guys that have off nights every, every now and then and, you know, other guys step up and play well, so. I think on any given night, any of us can play well, and it's a, a full team effort. So we're interviewing you at the moment. This is currently Tuesday, January 25, and we'll be uploading on Australia Day. And January 26 yep. is a massive date for you in your basketball life because it's the day you made your NBA debut back in 2020, so it's your two-year anniversary. But it was also the day that Kobe Bryant passed away. And I'm not sure many people would have felt so conflicted with their emotions about the happiness of a debut but the sadness of what was going on in America at the time. Can you take us back to that day and what it was like emotionally? Yeah, so, you know, I just we had just come off of a G League win in uh, Greensboro, and uh, which is in uh, Char- near Charlotte, North Carolina. And, uh, you know, I, got, I had gotten told by the general manager at the time, Anthony Parker, that, um, you know, this, this is uh, the Magic are, are calling you up today. You know, this is, when you, this is what you've been asking for. You finally are going up, um, and, you know, we'll send you out in the morning, so... The next day, early that morning, we flew out. Me and uh, one of the other NBA guys, Melvin Frazier, flew out. Maybe at about 7 a.m. from Greensboro and landed in New Jersey. Uh, from New Jersey, went to Orlando to, to try and make it to shoot around. And uh, it, uh, it's actually funny. We, we, we had to go. And I'm sure you know, all the news was just lost with us kind of being in um, up in the air. But uh, – it took us about, I don't even know, a couple hours. We landed at like 1140. Had to hurry up getting an Uber and kind of speed on down. You know, the days when Uber was still around. Speed on down to uh, the arena. And, um, you know, I kind of go in the arena and I'm, I'm feeling pretty pumped up to finally make my debut. 
and uh, you know, be back with the magic, right? Like it's, it's, it's the day where I feel like my dream is coming true, and um, up, you know, kind of with the team, and everyone's just kind of walking around like zombies. You know, I, I didn't really know kind of what the energy was like, and I thought it was like kind of like the rookie kind of treatment. I didn't, I didn't really get it. But then, you know, I talked to Terrence Ross, and he tells me, you know, kind of just, just really, you could just tell with his body language down that uh, Kobe Bryant had died, and um, you know, it just kind of put a whole dark cloud on the day. And uh, we were meant to play the Los Angeles Clippers, and I think Doc had wanted to play or something, or like he had, he had kind of had a message that Kobe would have wanted to play. You know, Kobe would have played. So, you know, the game went on, but it was just it's really weird throughout the whole whole kind of process. You mentioned that the flights there that you said you went from North Carolina to New Jersey and out, and out to the other side of the country. That that's not a normal way that you would get from North Carolina to the other side of the country. I wouldn't have thought it would have taken you half the day. <laughs> nah, no, we. Um, I guess that's just the only the only flight that they had those connecting flights. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy I made it. You know, I'm, I'm devastated to hear that. You know, Kobe had passed, but you know, I'm happy we made it and and got to get up there and get rolling. Is it right you had some issues with your luggage across those multiple flights as well? Oh, man. Yeah, they um, – so at first they told me I wasn't going to dress. So I needed clothes and a suit and stuff. And uh, when we landed, the airline had actually lost all my, my luggage and stuff. So I told the, our director of ops that, you know, I, uh, I might need a whole new wardrobe for the day. But luckily, you know, I, I guess luckily, the coach told me when I got to shoot around, I, I might need to be ready to play. So – um, I guess all I needed was my uniform. So when the Wildcats went to America a couple of years ago for the NBA preseason games, they had they lost all their luggage on the way back as well, but a few of them had said that they oh, deliberately wow. thought, I'm going to pack a bag just of basketball gear in case a circumstance like this arises and we need to just have shoes or just have something to work with. They were warming up in their pyjamas from, from business class off the plane, but they had shoes and they had pyjamas. That was all they were working with. Did you have anything when you got off the plane that day? I just had my basketball shoes and the clothes on my back. So it was it was a bizarre bizarre day then. But it must have, did you do you look back with a, with a fondness as, as you know you didn't get much time on court, but you had an opportunity to make your debut on on what is a really strange environment, a strange day. But it is the day that you made your debut. So how do you reflect on it now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think you know all things considered, looking back on it, just trying to pay respect to to Kobe and and just be a part of the day. You know, it was kind of like you said, a weird day, but. I think now that, now that I'm, I'm looking back on it, still a sad day, but I'm happy I did get that opportunity. So you, we talk about your debut in those circumstances, and then you play about five games before the season is suspended due to COVID. So you finally achieve your dream, and then you're doing something where everyone else is working from home, but athletes can't because you can't play sport over Zoom. It's not a video game. Like, What was that like to go through? Well, actually, when um, we were only home for maybe a week or you know a couple of weeks, and then the NBA had kind of passed the protocols and Florida never really like shut down all the way. So the NBA passed protocols to where players who start training again, if the, you know, if the arenas can get cleaned and stuff. So I went back to our, me and my partner went back to Orlando. Um, and I began working out, you know, in preparation for the bubble. So, and how was the bubble? Like, as we said, in terms of dreams, you want to be playing in front of the big crowds and have the pizzazz and the excitement and you're playing in front of nobody. No, nah, no. Um, it was uh, it was weird at first, right? Like, you know, they kind of tried to put the video boards around the arena, 
to uh I guess make it so you could see people's faces. I don't, I don't really know. It's not the same, but you know they imported music and different stuff. But you know, in my eyes, I just thought it was cool that I was on the court and with all those players and got the opportunity to showcase what I could do. So when you look back at that now, we asked Bryce last week when he was on how he feels about his previous NBA experience, and he said it took a long time for him to get over not being there again. Uh, are you c- content with what you experienced that first time as, as what the experience would genuinely be, or does it drive you so much harder to get the genuine experience of uh, a season and get back there and have the hype and the, the excitement and be really part of an entire year? Uh, I think what more so drives me than anything is that maybe I wasn't so much ready at the time. You know, I think I'm so competitive and so fiery that in the moment I thought I should have gotten more opportunities and and more of this and more of that. But, you know, as you mature and you look back on it, you know, I I don't think I was ready. I don't think at at that specific time I might not have been ready for that moment. But, you know, as I've gotten older and gotten better, um, you know, I can appreciate the things that Coach Clifford taught me and what I learned in the organization. Um, now, at this moment, I'm just trying to become the best person, the best basketball player I can be, right? Like, I think before it was so much, I got to get to the NBA, I got to get to the NBA. And now I just want to be happy and, and continue my development as a, as a human. So when you talk about not necessarily being ready, you're, you're a fascinating story, I reckon, of courage and perseverance. Born in Chicago, you spent five years at Northwestern College, which is ironically also the Wildcats, and it wasn't mm-hmm. until your fifth year that you are actually genuinely healthy enough to show what you could do. So take the listeners inside what you had, pro- the problems you had with your, lunged, um, with your lungs where you weren't mm-hmm. actually operating like most normal people are. Yeah, so... I guess for most of my life, like I felt like it took me a, a long, like a particularly long time to get in shape. And when I was at Northwestern, my junior season, we made the tournament and played in Salt Lake City, which is pretty high elevation. It's in the mountains. And uh, we played a game against Vanderbilt. And I told my trainer or my physio um, on the sideline that I just felt like I was going to faint. And uh, I, you know, I, told, I thought I had asthma. And, uh, you know, she, you know, obviously she had her, her jokes and probably didn't believe me in the moment. But uh, after the game, I just wasn't right. And uh, so we waited until after the, you know, she got me an inhaler. We waited until after the tournament. I did some testing and some different stuff. And at first they thought I had pneumonia because the scan showed look kind of like a black image over on my, in my left lung. So I thought I had pneumonia. Then we did some, some other more scans and it showed that my intestines uh, liver and some other organs were crushing my left lung. And so my breathing capacity, I guess, for my entire life until that point was only about 50%. And, um, you know, the doctor at, at Northwestern just couldn't really believe it. He uh, didn't really know how to operate on me. Luckily, we found a, a specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota who knew how to do the operation. And um, he actually made a joke to my mother when we asked him, you know, was it uh, you know, high, a high rate of success. And he kind of joked and said it's a 50 50 <laughs> with, I guess, one side of the 50 being me dying. But, um, you know, everything went well. And, uh, you know, I, I look back on it every year since then has been better and better. So I'm super, you know, super grateful for that and super happy that, you know, we found that. He didn't legitimately mean you could have died, though, did he? You said when he was joking, like, that, that was a genuine joke. You weren't actually putting your life at risk by having that surgery? 
I don't know when um when so when we kind of asked the doctor, the head doctor in Chicago at Northwestern about what we should do, he kind of thought you know he would have to operate like open heart surgery, uh, break my ribs, go into me like the fully like open my body up like a book and kind of go in and do stuff, and that was risky, and that would have been almost a two two year recovery, um, and so he said obviously held on to that. Um, and so we went to and found a specialist who, uh, did it using like little small portholes and did it much more, like much less invasive. Um, and you know, it was a success. So I'm, I'm really happy with, with who we found and how he was able to do it. So, what, so I, I don't know if I would have died, but you know, it seemed like the options for surgery, there would have been complications either way. So what year are we talking about here? 2018 or 17. And when did you start feeling better then? So my, I actually recovered faster than they thought. Uh, I would say uh, as soon as I started playing basketball again, within five months of surgery, I felt better. I don't know if I noticed the difference because obviously to me, like I don't know what normal person's breath feels like, but to me, I felt normal when I was with one lung. And now, uh, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm playing better. I, um, I'm, I'm more shaped, so I, I feel good. So do you feel that your ceiling of what you can become now is significantly higher than what it would have been as you were going through college because you're you are only still learning how to use your body and your, your your body is still learning how to get to the fitness levels and the strength levels that you would have been able to get to if you had have had that 100% lung capacity. Uh, Sure. I mean, I don't know. I guess so. I, th- I guess, you know, I, I think I've just been blessed to be in good situations and with good organizations the last couple of years, but I'm excited to see what my true potential and my prime will look like. So I read that you you played at 190 pounds in college, which is 86 kilos in Australian mm. language, and you're 201 centimeters tall. So if we look at the differences between you and a couple of other players of a similar height, Dennis Rodman played at 100 kilos, so 14 kilos more than what you were at college. Kawhi mm. Leonard, 102. You're basically the same weight as what Steph Curry is, and he's you know, at 188 centimeters. How did you manage to compete without being able to go to the gym and put on that weight because your lungs weren't allowing you to do that sort of, that sort of work? Oh, I mean, I just, I'm, like I said, I'm super competitive and super fiery. I think my, one of my biggest skills is my IQ and my toughness. You know, you figure it out, right? Like no one's going to feel sorry for you that you might be a little lighter or whatever the case, even now. And I wouldn't really consider myself a big, but I'm still guarding, you know, like to like Duopery, Daniel Johnson, um, and what will be Jerome Martin on Sunday. So, you know, no one's going to take pity on you. And I, I expect nothing less uh, because on the other end of the court, I'm not looking for any excuses either. So, you know, no, nah, I, I don't really, I don't really look at my weight and see that as a disadvantage. You know, it's just how hard you're going to fight. It's interesting because there are some significant advantages as well, isn't there? Like your your agility and your athleticism is vastly different. You've got different sides of your game that players who are bigger can't keep up with you with. Do you, do you focus on those strengths? Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you look at the, the positives and obviously, you know, you, you may have weaknesses and that's what you try to sure up. But yeah, you know, you you play to what, to what you have and the tools that you have. So given all of the dramas you've had with, with your lungs, COVID happens. I assume you were one of the 13 that got COVID in Tasmania. Have you had any issues that other players didn't have because of that when you caught, when COVID was running through the group? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, I was unfortunate enough to get it. But um, I would say uh, um, 
I didn't have. I was lucky enough, and a lot of us were lucky enough to not have any serious complications with COVID. You know, we uh, were blessed enough to kind of you know have mild symptoms, um, and and luckily get the antibodies after we got out of the isolation. But now, you know, now I'm, I feel as though I'm getting my rhythm back. Uh, I'm starting to play with with the same swagger that I was before I got COVID, and uh, getting my win back. It's pretty amazing to think that, you know, as we said, you've had the lung surgery, you've had the COVID now, you had major shoulder surgery when you were at college also, and then you destroyed your ankle last year at Brisbane. I reckon you'd just be looking around going, if I can get a slice of luck with my body and get through a, a long period of time without any issues, I can really tear the sport apart. <laughs> yeah, um, you're pretty required. Trust me. I think, um, I, I genuinely don't think there are a lot of people, you know, in the world better than me when I'm fully healthy and fully ready to go. But I, I, I am really lucky to be in the position that I'm in, you know, to be in Perth, to still be playing the game that I love with, through everything that you've said, through all the complications, through COVID, just through everything, just to continue to play, to continue to play and to play at this high level. You know, now it's, now it's just about being happy, man, and, and, and kind of taking care of my body the best I can not being young and dumb anymore and, and just kind of trying to put myself in the best positions I can. Well, you certainly put yourself in a good position against Illawarra, and that's a great lead into the Dribble Podcast MVP votes for this week. And this week I have gone with one vote for Todd Blanchfield for the way he came off the bench with his 20 points having a massive impact on that game. Two votes went to Bryce Cotton, 24 points, including four three-pointers. And there's no shock with the three votes. It's the man we're talking to, Vic Law, with 22 points, seven rebounds, and two blocks. So at this point of the season, it's extremely tight at the top. Bryce is leading on 16 votes. Vic's one vote behind on 15. Then it's daylight because Luke Travers is third on five votes in just a sign of how dominant the Cotton Law combination has been. Now, it's interesting, Vic, that when I was doing some research, obviously, to, to put all this together and to, to talk to you today, and I saw a quote from your mum saying that you were named Vic, uh, because they, but they actually call you Tory because they say Victory, as in victory. Is that is that the, the true story? That that, that that was the background towards the way you, your, your parents refer to you? <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny. Actually, no one outside of my family has called me Tory, but um, that is, I, I hadn't been called Vic until maybe my, you know, I got to eighth grade high school, you know, all my, all my family has been like super close friends just called me Tori. Um, my mom had one a boy and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the baby of the family and she finally got me. And so named after my father, but he's big Vic. She had to come up with a nickname for me. So I was her victory. So how big is the family? If you're the baby of the family. How many, how many cracks did your mom and dad have before they got the boy? Well, I have um, I have four siblings, but I have two half siblings and two sisters. So a half brother and half sister, and then two full sisters. So with that Tory sitting next to your name, what would a championship victory mean to you this season with the Wildcats? Oh, it'd be great! It'd be my first championship. So you know, I, and I think just with this group and how close we are, I think it'd be it'd be a great feeling to to really bask in the and even more of the winning tradition of Perth if we were able to to pull one down ourselves. Do you feel that when you look at this team at the moment, with everything that you've been going through with the COVID, with living in Tasmania, not being able to get home now for a lot of the guys, um, we've got obviously got families over here. Do you think that this team at the moment looks like a group that just has everything going for it on the court that it can achieve that sort of success? Oh uh, yeah, well, I hope so. I think I think we've built a really good roster. You know, it's actually funny. Yesterday was a, or the Illawarra game was the first game we've had our full roster playing. You know, with guys being hurt. Um, 
or otherwise. You know, it's the first time we've actually had everybody. So I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think we have some of the makings to be a very, very good team. You know, only time will tell, but we'll take it one game at a time and keep pushing. Now, we have a segment here on the Dribble Podcast called This or That. We ask a question and we don't like people sitting on the fence. We like to know their exact opinion. And the question for this week is, should the unsportsmanlike foul be removed from the last two minutes of games to allow for more intentional fouls to stop the clock? Or is it good to retain the advantage for the team that spent 38 minutes working hard to get their lead? What do you think? Keep the unsportsmanlike foul late or remove it and change the game a little bit? Uh, I think I think they should remove it completely. I think uh, some of the unsportsmanlike fouls are a little iffy. You know, I obviously think that there's a gray area with what is a basketball non basketball play, but some of some of the reach in fouls and some of the other calls that are made are uh, with being unsportsmanlike. I think maybe a little too um, light to to warrant the extra penalty. It's certainly a big penalty in the game. There's, there's no doubt about that. Well, look, thank you so much for, for joining us. The Wildcats' next game is a rematch against Illawarra on, on Thursday, 4.30 p.m. Western time, followed by a clash against the Sydney Kings on Sunday. Vic, we hope things continue to go extremely well for both yourself and the team, and it's been uh, really enjoyable talking to you, and it's been really enjoyable watching you. Th- so thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.